Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show I talk to actress and fashion designer and now director Antonia Campbell-Hughes about her brooding directorial debut It Is In Us All, set among the hills of Donegal, about two young men on the run from themselves. We review Don't Worry Darling, the movie that caused all the bother with the supposed spitting incident at the Venice Film Festival. And we find out if it's actually any good. Plus, comedian Ian Coppinger chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I'm battling a slight cold. Nothing to worry about, though, just one of those seasonal things. Indeed, I'm in great health, one might suggest, because I did the Dublin Half Marathon last Saturday. Now, I told you a while ago I wouldn't talk to you about running because I'm signed up to do the Dublin Marathon, and I don't think I've mentioned it since then, but uh, I did do the Dublin Marathon. The Dublin Half Marathon, I should say, and the Dublin Marathon now is only five weeks away. You know, I won't boast about my time or anything. It wasn't bad, all things considered, uh, but it was a lovely autumn morning. There wasn't a breeze out. It was in the Phoenix Park, and it was just lovely. A lot of serious runners. When I first started running, there was a lot more what would you say, give it a goers. Uh, But I don't know if COVID, people started taking exercise very seriously. There was a lot of serious people running that race. A lot of high-end gear and lots of gels and water bottles and a lot of people taking it very seriously. And hats off to you if you did it. And hats off to you if you ran a mile or walked a mile. So uh, no more running talk until maybe, you know, closer to the big one in a couple of weeks' time. Because after all, this is a TV and movie show. And talking of movies, we I mentioned in the intro there we're going to be reviewing Don't Worry Darling. I went to see it on Wednesday night in the Stella Cinema in Rathmines. Now, I haven't been there in a while. I've told you many times it's a glorious cinema where... It's just like an event to go there and you could get beer and wine and the seats are incredibly comfortable. I went to see it a Wednesday evening about half seven. I had a busy day. I'd been up from six that morning, got in, had a beer, put my feet up on the puffs that are in front of the seats that you can kind of relax on. And even though, you know, we'll get to what I thought about the movie in a bit, but uh, I was quite relaxed, you know. I wasn't a million miles away from throwing on the pajamas and, you know, I I possibly maybe even farted at one point. So uh, Stella need to be careful. This inducing these kind of, you know, Home Alone vibes in the cinema. It's so relaxing. It really is. But uh, more of the uh, Don't Worry Darling shortly in the company of Mark Ryle, who has also seen it. But uh, as I've said too many times before, the Stella is a unique cinema experience. Now, in TV this week, I was watching this. I know you bribe quartermasters to leave valuables on the ships before they come in for scrap, but this isn't that. This isn't something that let pass. No. I went in and got this myself. How? How's that possible? It was it was sealed on the Imperial Naval Base in Steergard. Look, you got the money, I got the box. What else is there to talk about? I'll give you another thousand credits to tell me how you got it. <laughs> another thousand. Done. How? 
You just walk in like you belong. Takes more than that, doesn't it? What? To steal from the Empire? What do you need? A uniform, some dirty hands, and an Imperial toolkit? <laughs> They're so proud of themselves. They don't even care. They're so fat and satisfied. They can't imagine it. Can't imagine what? That someone like me would ever get inside their house, walk their floors, spit in their food, take their gear. Yes, and that was Diego Luna opposite Stellan Starsgard in Andor, the new, that's right, how many more do we need, but the new Star Wars serial that launched on Disney Plus this week, Andor, is Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna, who played the same character in Rogue One. So here we have a sequel to a sequel. This is set five years before Rogue One. And as you may know, Rogue One was a Star Wars spin-off movie from a few years ago that basically came right up, literally, to the door of the first Star Wars movie. So, you know, there is a certain amount of Star Wars fatigue. We've had the Book of Boba Fett. We've had uh, Obi-Wan. We've had the Mandalorian. Now, you know, I've enjoyed the Mandalorian and Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, Book of Boba Fett, not so much. And it seems for the moment, Star Wars is going to be confined to the small screen. This so far, there's going to be 12 episodes of this over two series. I've seen the first two and a half. And so far, this is pretty good because what they've done, and, and they need to be mindful of this in the future, is that they've made this, It's it's of course, it's Star Wars, but there isn't a huge amount of fan service at this point. They're not knocking you over the head with, you know, shadowy pictures of Darth Vader and lots of stormtroopers. Of course, there's talk of TIE fighters and stuff like that. And we're very much in a Star Wars world, but it isn't killing you with fan service. It's also quite dark and gritty. Diego Luna, when we meet him, is basically a thief uh, and he gets into an altercation in the first episode and kind of goes on the run. And this is going to be his story from moving from a, a petty thief and a pretty hardened criminal to becoming a member of the rebellion. And this is not very showy, which is good. It's grubby, it's dark, it's gritty, it rains a lot, and he's moving around the universe to different planets. He has a past that is slowly being revealed, and it was pretty good so far. It was kind of a good knockabout, punch him up, intriguing, almost touch of a spy show about it. Uh, so it's a bit like, I don't want to say The Mandalorian, but it it, it it's gritty. And it moved at a nice pace, even though it was doing a bit of world building, it it, it it got you in straight away. So I'm cautiously optimistic so far about Andor, two episodes in. Now, you need to be careful about saying you're cautiously optimistic about something after two or three episodes, because we were talking about Lord of the Rings a couple of weeks ago, Rings of Power, and I'm sorry, my cautious optimism is, is really fading because halfway through it, I'm, I'm I'm still wondering where all the money went because that is a show that I'm sad to say isn't working for me. So uh, we'll talk a bit more about that next week. Anyway, that is Andor on Disney Plus from this week. Episodes every week. There are three there. Let me know if you might have watched it so far. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. 
And talking of Disney Plus, this week on Pat Kenny on our series Boxed, where we revisit some TV you might have missed, I was talking about another great and slightly under the radar series, Single Drunk Female, with Sophia Black D'Elia, who is brilliant as a girl who loses her job in a fancy New York internet magazine thing because she's an alcoholic and she returns to Boston and lives with her mother, played by Ali Sheedy. And we talked about it on the show earlier in the year, but just a reminder, a great, great series that has really fallen under the radar. It's very funny. It's also a very earnest and non-showy look at kind of getting over addiction a great show and when i talked about it on pat earlier in the week a lot of people were in touch saying how much they've enjoyed it so do check out single drunk female 10 episodes on disney plus didn't even get a nod at the emmys and i think it should have welcome to the victory project we're all here because we believe in the mission what are we doing Changing, Changing the, the world. world. What are we doing? Changing, Changing the, the world. world. That's right. What do you think they're really doing out there? What do you mean? The one thing they ask of us is to stay here. Where it's safe. Do you even know what the Victory Project actually is? Have you ever asked? Do you? Please, what's actually happening? Stop it, Alice. What if this place is dangerous? What if Stop it! No. Jack, it's okay. I'm curious to hear where she's going with this. Now, that was a clip from the much-talked-about Don't Worry Darling, starring Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, and, of course, Chris Pine. This was in the news recently at the Venice Film Festival when there was talk of people spitting on each other, problems on set. Shia LaBeouf was originally cast in the movie, but then left. So it's had a complicated history. So I guess we're wondering, is the juice worth the squeeze? I'm joined by my own spit platoon. (laughs) Mark Ryle. Hello, sir. What? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I did mean it as a compliment, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, uh, this has been much talked about for, I suppose, the wrong reasons. It, it, it's been outside of the movie. It's directed by Olivia Wilde, who's also in it. Mm. If it matters to people, she is in a relationship with Harry Styles now. And it appears that, th- you know, there was... I don't want to say aggression, but there were certainly people not getting on with each other on set. But we're here to talk about the movie. Yeah, we're veering into showbiz correspondent territory there, and I'm not yeah. going. I'm no, not you're going not. To you're you're not that guy. I'm not that guy. No, definitely if you want not. To talk about people's rubbish. I'm not the person to be. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Good. Are you okay to talk about the movie though? Like, or? yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> people need to know what the movie's about. Okay, so it is, uh, it's kind of, I think it's 1950s setting and it's in this uh, top secret experimental commune in the middle of the desert called the Victory Project, which is led by uh, Chris Pine's enigmatic character, Frank. And every morning, Harry Styles heads off in his snazzy 1950s car with all of the other men to carry out non-specific work on something that sounds vaguely threatening that's referred to as the quote-unquote development of progressive material. 
And while the men are off, uh, Florence pews Alice, like all of the other women, they scrub the house from top to bottom. Uh, she takes ballet lessons in the afternoon and then heads home again to cook a big dinner and stand by the front door with a cocktail waiting for her husband to arrive home. And as the movie opens, the drink is flowing, the good times are rolling and everyone's having a fine time indeed. But as you could probably guess, all is not what it seems in The Victory Project. Indeed it isn't. And strange things happen and people question The Victory Project. Mm. So uh, what did you think of it? I think that uh, Olivia Wilde is... I th- you know, she could have done something very similar to her. Obviously, this is her second movie in the director's chair, um, following the, the the brilliant Booksmart. Yes, a brilliant, brilliant, hilarious movie. Absolutely, and it's got the she's re- reuniting with the uh, Booksmart screenwriter Katie Silverman on this. So it could have been, you know, she could have done something similar. But to her credit, she's tried something different. And um, this is a psychological thriller. Uh, it's got sci-fi elements. I think she deserves credit for aiming high. Um, and it, this has, I think it's got lofty ambitions. And to, to be fair, I think she almost hits the bullseye. And I really liked three quarters of it. It's just, I think it's unfortunate that it kind of falls over at the final hurdle. That would be my uh, opinion on it. Interesting. I wasn't sure what you were going to think of it. As listeners know who were listening earlier in the show, I saw this as well. I uh, went to see it in the Stella, which I was mm. talking about. And I'm kind of surprised by it in that it's not that I didn't like it, but I feel like I've seen this before, Mm -hmm. Uh, like in a movie like Far From Heaven to an extent, the Todd Haynes film, this idea of, you know, 1950s America not being all that it seems. Now, I know that's not quite what this is doing because this is more of a imaginative take on uh, 1950s reality and and that kind of thing. But, you know, and I don't want to give spoilers or anything, but, you know, I've seen the Truman show. Mm. Uh, So I I just thought the conceit of this movie wasn't the most original thing. And I couldn't help being left feeling that were it not for the palaver that we mentioned that followed this movie, I don't know if you and I would be giving it that much credence that's certainly what i thought i think we would to be fair um, okay I think, I think olivia wilde did enough with Booksmart that people were going to be waiting to see what she did next so i see fair where you're coming from. i did like i and i yeah that point on not wanting to spoil anything i think you know unless you've never seen a movie before it should come as a surprise to absolutely no one that that you know all is not what it seems here and yeah there is a, a twist and yeah. um, talking about the movies that, like you said, you've seen this before, it does have a rake of influences that are really easy to spot. Um, you mentioned uh, The Truman Show. I th- like it's, it's drawn from The Twilight Zone. It's drawn mm. from The Stepford Wives. Yeah. It's drawn from Pleasantville. And, you know, even discussing those influences kind of runs the risk of spoiling it. Sure, yeah. So, so uh, we but, won't. So but there are, certainly, there are certainly lots of antecedents to this, you know? Definitely. You know? It's not original, and I suppose it's what she's done with it. And I think visually it's incredible, and I think a lot of the credit for that goes to the cinematographer, Matthew Libatique, who did a lot of... He did shot most of Aronofsky, Aronofsky's movies. Um, it's, it, you know... It looks amazing. It's incredibly stylish. The production design and the costumes, they're, they're achingly hip. And I think, I think for, personally, for the most part, there's this very satisfying, very threatening undercurrent of paranoia mm. and foreboding that I really, really enjoyed. Um, the problem 
with this for me was that the, the you know the big reveal it's it's quite stupid and when you eventually find out what's going on at the victory project it's not one of those twists that make you rethink and reevaluate everything that's gone before it just kind of makes you regret bothering with it at all and, <laughs> you know and it's I, I think it's also executed quite poorly which mm. is a shame because as i say three quarters of this is not bad at all and um, and i think ultimately the targets that Wilde is taking aim at here, they're not really sophisticated ones. Um, it's not a deep and it's not thought-provoking movie, but the problem is that it thinks it's deep and thought-provoking. Yeah, I'm with you on both the things you say there. One, the twist is is underwhelming. Uh, it is. And, and how it comes to play out. And secondly, you're right, and it does look great and despite the fact that I feel like I've seen it before, the way this 1950s, you know, uber suburbia with, the, you know, the husband coming home for his whiskey at five o'clock, that's brilliantly painted. And yeah. also the the menace that all might not be well in the garden is done really well. So, so I grant you that as well. But, but I come back to the word you use, underwhelming. I was mm. just a bit underwhelmed by the whole thing. And, and let's just talk a small bit about the performances. Yeah. Florence Pugh was great. I think she's the best thing in it. Mm. Harry Styles. Here's the thing about Harry Styles. Absolutely fine. But again, if he wasn't, if he wasn't this, you know, and by the way, the new Bowie is a phrase you will never hear me utter because that's just nonsense. But if he wasn't, you know, this, you know, pop icon and and hats off to him. And he's a great musician. I have to say that. I just don't think he's David Bowie, but were it not for all that goes before him, like he's just a grand actor in this. He plays, he plays a, a guy, you know, who's got a good job, married passionately in love with his wife very well, but there's nothing like, Oh my God, this guy's the new De Niro or something. Like, I don't get where all that is coming from. No, I, in fact, I was fine is exactly the 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 term I would use as well. I think he's he's fine, and just yeah. as he was fine in Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, you yes, know? yeah. But in Dunkirk, he really wasn't required to act a whole lot. He was he really just had to react, I suppose. Yeah, um, and he looks the part. He looks great in a suit. It does have to be said, though. I think when it counts here in some really very important scenes of heightened emotions, I think his lack of his experience and acting abilities really let him down. Mm-hmm. Also, it's not really fair putting him up against Florence Pugh. Um, it's a bit like making a dog play chess with Gary Kasparov, I think. Um, because as you say, like Pew, she doesn't so much carry the movie as she just pops it under her arm and, and strolls away with it. She's in, mm. she's in an absolutely different league to everyone else here, bar maybe Chris Pine. Yeah, I thought Olivia Wilde herself, who who plays Florence Pugh's best friend in it, is, is uh, good. She's, she's fine, you know. Fine. Okay. Yeah. yeah that was pretty but, good. I, mean, I, like, I thought Chris Pine was good as well, but there's no argument that that Florence Pugh just runs away with it. We're, she we're does, on the same yeah. page. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Her, I, I think her character is very similar to the, the the one she did in in Midsummer. They're kind of you know walking the same path. Um. So you again, you could say that we've seen this before from her, but there she she I think she is let down by the script. And at a certain, there's a definite point in this where you can almost see. Uh, her talent and abilities diverge from the quality of the material that she's given to work with. Mm. Do you know what I was thinking about there as well, just Mm. as we were talking? I was replaying the movie in my head. Now, I have a bit of a head cold and it's been a busy week and, you know, I was in the Stella late Wednesday night, but I can't actually remember the closing moments of this movie. Yeah. Do you know what? And it's never a great sign. 
I, I wasn't going to talk about this. I saw, I didn't see this at a press show with the usual, you know, five. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I saw this at a, it was a full audience screening. Yeah. And it, like, as is usual with these things, there was, there's a round of applause at the end. And it, like, I'm of the opinion that like clapping a movie, unless the director or somebody is there, it's, it, it's a waste of time. You're, it may as well be clapping a meal when the you know the, the chef isn't in the room it's a um, weird one the same thing happened to me and i was at a, a public screening with all sorts of people the expose one as you describe it uh <laughs> but i uh i yeah, they clapped uh, yeah i think i'm with I, you on the applause well, thing so i was at a, it was a full crowd but the, i've never heard a more uh lackluster and bewildered round of applause in my life oh was it lackluster yeah if it's possible to describe a round of applause as confused that's what it was yeah <laughs> there was a, a definite sort of air of is that it you know yeah yeah i don't know where i was going with that but i just no thought. no because i was saying the ending was kind of i can't quite remember it now but uh yeah, yeah. so okay well yeah. look you liked it a bit more than me which is often not the case because you've much you know higher you know <laughs> artistic credentials and aesthetic criteria and all that kind of stuff but what would you say stars wise for don't worry darling um, I'm going to give it three and a half. I think it's it's nearly there. Okay. I'm going to give it three because it certainly wasn't bad. Yeah. And, you know, it's an enjoyable two hours. But but at the same time, I didn't quite get what all the fuss was about. That said, considering this is uh, Olivia Wilde's second movie as director and Booksmart was the first one, it is fascinating to see what she'll do next. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. as I said, she could have just done the same thing again, but she, you know, she deserves credit for, yeah. for trying. Yeah, absolutely. As do you. I would give you a round of applause, only I know how much you hate them. But thank you for joining me. A bewildered round of applause. Talk to you next week. Talk to you next week, John. Up next, Antonia Campbell-Hughes on her directorial debut, It Is In Us All. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now opening this weekend is a brooding new movie called It's In Us All, which sees Hamish, played by the brilliant Cosmo Jarvis. He plays a brash yet emotionally repressed man visiting Donegal to ostensibly sell his aunt's house, where his own long since past mother is from and who he and who he secretly desires a connection with. While driving on the dark Donegal roads at night, he crashes head on to another speed vehicle and kills one of the young people in the car. The other person in the car survives, Evan, played by newcomer Rhys Mannion. He, as I say, he survives the crash and he meets Hamish at the dead boy's funeral. And Hamish and Evan strike up a strange relationship that may prove to be their undoing or perhaps their redemption. It's a fascinating movie covering all sorts of topics from repressed trauma to familial wishes to death wishes. It's a fine film that lingers long in the memory. It's the directorial debut of actress Antonia Campbell-Hughes, and I'm delighted to say she joins me now. Hi, Antonia. How are you? Hello, I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I, I, the movie is intriguing to me, and I, I pardon the snapshot I gave it there for listeners. But, you know, it, it's a very obvious question, but it just seems pertinent that I ask you, where was the source for this in your own mind when you when you came to write this? What what gave you cause to write this story? Um, I mean, I suppose everyone asks that. And, um, well, I'm glad I did too. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, um, and I can't give you a one-line answer, I'm afraid, because everything that you said in your sort of 
synopsis was very well done because, I mean, that gives the narrative and you touched on that addresses so many, you know, um, ideologies and themes, concepts, whatever. And these are things that I think I'll probably be fascinated by across the board of my career. You know, mm-hmm. um, I've always been really I've just uh, at odds with how people um generally in our in our kind of relationship dynamics gel or don't gel and how people can feel um alienated or dislocated and we see that you know why people who are expats and specifically the the idea of that's so rich in Ireland which is family and people who are I suppose expatriated from that so that's sort of my um my own version of it you know Hamish's story is that he's someone whose uh familial ties are with Donegal and He's always he's uh, lived elsewhere. And that was my connection with the place of Donegal. Mm. And I'd always been very interested in how um, male and masculine are sort of stereotyped and depicted in cinema. And also, I guess, you know, what the patriarchal patriarchal impact is on male, because we are very woke and discuss about, you know, the impact on female a lot. And obviously, um, that's something I'm deeply um, involved in and curious in. But um, I was, I kept observing men who evidently struggle, but that struggle is inappropriate, if you understand me. Mm-hmm. So um, I was always interested in that. And then I was presented with um, a fund application and a short time timeline by which to submit to. And the conditions of that were it was set in Ireland and it was a women's scheme. It was low budget. And I've been spending lots of time visiting Donegal, which is where my mother was from. Mm-hmm. And there was this ongoing, you know, this repeat um, incident incidences of young boys and cars. And again, I saw the stereotyping of boy racer and I could see something mm-hmm. that was absolutely not within that stereotype which was a community of young people with so much abandon and vitality and true life, which was in stark contrast with the sort of affluent, excellent male that I saw in London. So I mm. wanted to um, con- in, um, show the contradiction and the, the differences of that. Cosmo Jarvis, he I saw him in a movie called Nocturnal and I saw him in a movie called Cam with Horses. And I recently saw him in Persuasion and he just does, you know, emotional reticence brilliantly. He really does. And I know people talk about the new Brando and all that nonsense, but he's he's a singular presence. He really is. But I gather, you know, and this is not a criticism, but he wasn't your first choice. Yet this seems like, you know, a happy accident because he's immense in it. Yes, he is. And, you know, the the truth of the matter is that actors fall into roles and fall out of them all the time. And sure. It's- that are nothing to do with choice it's just yeah in place and films are hard to make etc um but and i i'm a true believer also having been on the other side for so long i'm very aware of that it's nothing personal but what i really believe strongly as a director and and i know it as an actor is you write a character and you have a, a vision of that person in your mind through the writing but it's your duty to give it over to your actor and let them infuse part of themselves in it. Mm. And I, I feel very much that way as a director, because um, I just feel if you're trying to pull somebody into your absolute um, creation entirely, like in terms of their own bodily movements, then there's going to be a struggle. So um, 
Cosmo very much fleshed out the Hamish I'd written, but of course he brings a slightly different tonality to it than if a different actor played it. Yeah, uh, he, he certainly does. He, as I say, immense, if that's not a pretentious word. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, th- th- we don't want to veer near spoiler territory, but I loved a line in it where someone says to someone else, it's in us all. Uh, because I didn't know what the movie title meant until very late in the day. But that, I don't know, I, I need my 10-year-old here who's learning English grammar at the moment, but the it in that title, what is that referring to? Or can you say anything about that? Because, and I mean this as a compliment, I'm not actually sure what the it yeah. means. Well, you know what? It's kind of um the reason he's the character, as you say, says it's so late in the game. And the reason why the title is written that way, it's not it's it, it is it is in it is, yeah. It's very specifically written that way so that people mm. stop and consider and think. Yeah. Um and it what it is is that um area within ourselves that is so pure and has such it's not even happiness, it's like euphoric um explosive moments that makes you feel truly alive Mm -hmm. and we all know it it's very hard to articulate and it's not pretentious i swear (laughs) (laughs) like you know i know exactly what it is and the reason why it's built the film is built that way is because it is quite hard for us to grapple and articulate and i Mm -hmm. always compare it to deja vu because we all know that sense we all know what that is with deja vu but we all can't quite define it or articulate but we all kind of recognize that sense so in the same guys um it is in us all is that those moments that take our breath away and they aren't necessarily you know the the key um uh landmarks in our lives like birth of your first child there's sometimes just passing someone on the street and you think you remember them from somewhere and there's Mm -hmm. that you can there's that moment of connectivity or and you know in this film specifically it's about touching a place where there's adrenaline and euphoria and danger and just moments that make you feel truly, truly alive and makes all of the life that you've spent around it worth living. I gather it was one of the first movies to kind of begin production in, you know, one. Of, I, I've lost track of the various lockdowns, but this was filmed pretty much at the height of COVID. And it, it was a very complicated shoot in terms of stopping and starting. Is that right? Well, once we started, we didn't stop, but I was meant to shoot in June 2020, and obviously that didn't happen. So it was pushed to August, and I think there was a bit of anxiety about letting us go first out the door, as you say, in Ireland, because it's such a small film. The budget was quite small. So we went in October. Um, But what happened in October is I think the first days of shooting, we were in level three, and then by day four, it jumped to level five, and we thought that that was it. Mm. And then they passed, you know, essential work was film and television. And actually, I I found personally that the extreme levels of lockdown were very conducive to the nature of the film. I mean, we Mm. were lucky enough to choose a part of Donegal that is very vast, you know, it's very sparsely populated anyway. Um, Dunlow is a town and they really hosted us. You know, we had to create these um living bubbles everyone committed to the film for eight weeks and couldn't leave at all or see loved ones um but that's the sort of filmmaking that i've grown up as an actor in where it's very immersive for every part of the film every crew member as well and Mm -hmm. i think that's where great art comes from 
Yeah. Tell me this, just to go back to the movie, Reese Mannion plays Evan and, and the relationship he has with Hamish is it's it's really well drawn because again, you know, like the it and the title, you're not really sure or I wasn't really sure what it is. Is it is it a father son thing? Is it survivor's guilt? Is it romantic slash sexual? Reese carries that just as well as Cosmo does and leaves that confusion with you and brilliantly so. And yet he's a, he's a first timer. So I, I'm wondering, where did you find him? Well, um, well, what I would quickly say about Cosmo and Reese, what they both, what was so important to me with the casting of both of them is they're quite against type. So mm. Cosmo, um, you know, uh, there were lots of wonderful actors that I met with who um, are very like Hamish, the character in a sense that they're very excellent men and they're very, poised and educated and tall and elegant and self-caring in their physicality. And Cosmo is much more um, loose. And uh, so I like going against type and getting the actor. And Because when you go do that, you get a sort of inner conflict and struggle and it's a much more complicated character. So with Reese, um, obviously I saw so many children. I mean, hundreds. And um, mm. he taped early on and then it was difficult to meet children I mean, what they're not necessarily children if they're 17, but, you know. No, I um, know, I know. <laughs> yeah, um, but I did see lots of ages. And then we had started seeing tapes. And ta- Reese's tape had been missed. And I found it again in lockdown because I'd go and look back at everything we had. And what is so unique about Reese is he does have that quality that is a completely unbridled, open, lacking of cynicism beauty. He's so disarming in his wide-eyed, um, curiosity about everything yeah. and that's a great juxtaposition with with uh, Cosmos Hamish because as you said the, com- the the what's so essential about the relationship is its um, ambiguous complexity and that mm-hmm. is where the tension and the connection comes from because there had to be this uh, unquite almost non-binary um, sensuality that is without uh, agenda it is something so pure that it doesn't even fall under age or gender. And mm-hmm. I mean, that does speak to many people. It's only when we can't categorize it, then people start to become fearful and it becomes taboo. And that's specifically what I was trying to address. You know, I just mentioned in passing that you were an actress or actor at the start. And I didn't give any of your credits of which they're they're long and winding. I think the first thing I ever saw you in was Lead Balloon with Jack D. But I, I'm just wondering, you mentioned, you know, when you're directing people now, it has to be a tremendous bonus. I, I can't help but thinking for the set when someone who's been in the trenches of acting for so long gets behind the camera. You must I assume bring a certain sensitivity and understanding and sympathy to it. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I was, I didn't know what kind of director I was going to be till I started directing. And what I realized is that for so many years as an actor, I think I was actually a filmmaker and I think many actors are filmmakers. Mm. You know, they, I've always been deeply curious about everything that happens on set. And I found every opportunity as an actor to be a sponge, to learn about how films are made and the technical aspects. Um, I've learned about what actors need by being on sets with other actors. Mm-hmm. Some actors are, they really need a lot of care and nurture and support from their director. And some actors need a lot of time alone and autonomy. And, um, and I think that I understand that there are all gradients of types of actors and mm-hmm. I know how to try and satisfy 
all of them. I don't think there's a one size fits all. And there's sometimes directors who just think that all actors perform the same way. And mm-hmm. it's just understanding that they have different needs. Um, but very much first and foremost, I always think that my visual and the tableau that I create, which is a combination of the visual and the sound and the camera is almost like my leading actor. And mm-hmm. then, uh, and yes, I, I demand a lot from my actors because I worked very hard as an actor. So that is something <laughs> that I expect of others. Okay. Tell me this. Uh, I had a look on your Instagram this morning. I guess that's the modern way of doing things, cyber-stalking people. But I saw, but one can never tell just in the age of, you know, things online, but it's probably from last year, but you had a tweet or not a tweet up. See, this is how bad a social media I am. You had an Insta post, I believe they're called, about my boy, uh, Philomena Linus. Are you going to have some association with the filming of that possible movie? Um, (laughs) 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 I just, I know what a big subject it is on this island. So... (laughs) We were talking about complicated men earlier, so I couldn't help but well, ask. It's, you know? it's about Philomena. Philomena's in okay, entirely. Yeah, um, no, no, sure. Yeah, um, but yes, it's about their relationship, but it's very, very early days. I have okay. it's a adaptation. I mean, yes, it was announced publicly in in Screen International, so it can be talked about. So okay, um, but uh, yes, it's an adaptation of her book. I have written the script, and um, it's in early stages of development. Okay, fantastic. I I met her once. Uh, she was she she was a, ch- a charming woman. So uh, it will make it a fascinating film, and no doubt if that comes to fruition, uh, you'll do a great job on it. It is in us all is on general release this Friday, which is the twenty third of September. I'm saying it very slowly, Antonia, because I don't want to say it's because I think it's really important to say it is in us all. That's why I'm speaking like I'm not a native. English speaker, which I am. The film is fantastic. And as I was saying to you off air, it kind of caught caught me off guard. It really wasn't what I expected. And uh, I, I mean that as a compliment. So the best of luck with it. And thanks a lot for chatting to me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Antonia Campbell-Hughes there talking to me about her first directed feature, full-length feature, It Is In Us All. And like Antonia Campbell-Hughes has been in, I think it's 70 different things as an actress, but this is her, and we didn't get really get into any of that because there simply wasn't time. But this is her first full feature and uh, a great first feature it is too. So it's interesting to see what she might do next. Well, possibly a story of Philomena Lynott's life. So Watch this space. Up next, comedian Ian Coppinger on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. My next guest might balk at the idea, but he was one of the godfathers of modern Irish comedy, <laughs> a comedy because he co-founded the Dublin Comedy Improv back in 1992. That is very hard to believe. He doesn't look that old. And he's been entertaining audiences ever since. He will be playing as part of the Galway Comedy Festival, which is back without any restrictions or anything like that from Tuesday the 25th to Monday the 3rd. 31st of October in Galway, of course. I'm talking about Ian Coppinger. Ian, hello, sir. Hello, how are you? 
I've never met you. It's strange. I thought I would have over the years. I know. It's kind yeah. of weird. But when I walked in and saw your face, I go, I recognise you from somewhere. Yeah, so it's I'd... one of those faces. And vice versa. Yeah. Maybe we, had Maybe we have. Maybe we had a mad fling in Greece many years ago. <laughs> Not the country, the musical. Yeah. She's a comedian. Listen, <laughs> your favourite movie, a great choice. I mean, you could say it's controversial because of some of the cast. Not that any of the content is controversial, but over to you. What is your favourite film? Uh, when you asked me this question, a load of films popped into my head. Of but course. ultimately, there's one that rises to the top, which is The Usual Suspects. Aha. Now, we have younger listeners who aren't old like you and I. No. Just remind people what goes on in that film. It's a, a very difficult film to talk about because <laughs> there's you don't want to give anything away. I no. adore the film and every time you watch it, you see something different in it, uh, which is part of the reason I love it. And um, when it came out, I didn't see it in the cinema. I saw oh, it, on, okay. it was on TV and I sat there and it just absolutely blew me away. I had to run out and buy it, I think, on video. Is that right. long ago? Maybe DVD, I'm not sure. But I think I've bought it twice on DVD and once as a download because it's one of those films I always like to have with yeah. me. It puts me in a good mood. Yeah. But it starts off with this five characters are drawn in by the police and they are the usual suspects of the title. And they sort of reckon... The story is told in hindsight as a verbal kint played mm. by... Kevin Spacey. <clears throat> uh, but at the time, we, we knew nothing, so I watched this film in total innocence. So we watched this film, and Verbal Kint tells the story of how these characters were brought together. They've all subsequently been killed. Uh, he's the only one remaining alive, mm-hmm. and I'm not giving away too much here because this is kind of the opening few yeah, minutes yeah. of the film. And he tells how they came to be together, the job that they were just trumped up in to bring these criminals together and then knowing that they would be together in a prison cell, they formulate a plan. Mm. And then they're kind of brought into another world that they had no idea existed. And it's just plot turn after plot turn after plot turn and you don't really know what's going on until Mm. the very final second of the film. Now, you're purposely not mentioning a name but I think we can. Oh yeah, no, there's there's a film, there's a a name throughout it, Kaiser Sose, which has become part of modern parlance almost and is downright kind of even now scary it's all, like even the name you're, it's, it's a kite yeah, and it, certainly in that movie it's terrifying yeah and you don't know what's going on There, the, Pete Postlethwaite plays yeah. a lawyer who turns up and he, Pete Postlethwaite is brilliant in it yeah. he turns up as this lawyer with the strangest accent I've ever heard <laughs> in my life I don't know what he's trying to do yeah. but he, it just turns out to be so inoffensive because it doesn't sound like any accent you've ever heard in your life <laughs> But the brilliant thing, yeah, there's this, this sort of myth about this character who all gangsters, as they say, it's a, a spook story that gangsters tell their kids, mm. you know, rat your father out and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell Kaiser Soze. Yeah. So it's this mythical character that they don't even know is real, mm. but they're all afraid of. Yeah. You know, and that there's one line that I'm trying to remember now, there's... there's I don't know if Kaiser Sose is real, but I know I'm afraid of it. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah. just, there's only one thing in this world that terrifies me, and that's Kaiser Sose. Yeah. That's the line. And it's just incredible. And these are hardened criminals saying it. Yeah. And the, the look of fear when they, they're all handed these envelopes and they look into them and their whole background is there and they're being told they have to do a job for Kaiser Sose mm. or else someone yeah. in their family or someone they love will mm. will find yeah. their, their end. Yeah. And then, again, this story begins to then unfold. So you've already seen bits of the story at the beginning. It's like a jigsaw that's yeah. put together in front of your eyes. And it's a brilliant And you jigsaw. don't know what the final picture is going to be on the box. You haven't seen the box. And then 
it's a different picture. Yeah, yeah, it's very well described. And look, we we that's great. And we don't have to say any more. But it does have, I would suggest, one of the greatest endings of all time. Or how do you feel about the end? I, I hate even saying this because I think it. it when uh, I saw uh, it, <laughs> it, I didn't know that that was going to happen. Yeah, and no, I, neither I, did I. Yeah. Again, it's it's one of those moments where you nearly fall off your chair. Yeah. And I hate saying that because the film is over and then you go, oh, okay. And then they pull the rug. (laughs) It's a brilliant, Danny. It's a brilliant film. Where do you stand on Kevin Spacey? So most people agree something nefarious or many nefarious things have happened in his life that we weren't aware of. Yeah. How do you feel about watching a film that he's now in? It's really odd and it's kind of very sad because, you know, he's in some brilliant films. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget he's in Seven. He's in American Beauty. Yeah. You know, these are all brilliant, brilliant films. He's a great actor. But it's so sad when you you go to watch something that you love and cherish that it's now tainted. Mm. You know, and maybe that's why I haven't watched The Usual Suspects in quite a long time. Uh, I don't know, because it's always lingering in the back of your head. And there was also accusations about the director, Brian Singer. That's true, yeah. Who is the director. And this is his f- second film, I think. Mm-hmm. They had to make another film to get this one The Usual finance, Suspect yeah. financed. Yeah. <laughs> And the, the genius of The Usual Suspects is it was made in like three and a half weeks because they had to schedule it around Gabriel Byrne's availability. Okay. And it was like, I can't remember the, the budget, but it's something ridiculous, like three million or something. Okay, which is a pittance. Yeah, absolute pittance, considering the, the talent that they have yeah. in it. The production looks amazing. There isn't a wasted shot. The soundtrack mm. is brilliant. I don't even know who did the soundtrack. But it just blends in so well with the film. Uh, there's actors who... They're very much character actors, and I never understand that term, character actor. Surely you're supposed to be acting a character <laughs> yeah. as opposed to a film star. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're just, everyone slots into their roles perfectly. Mm. The plot, a violent film, it's it's a gangster film, let's be yeah. honest. But it's a film noir, yeah, absolutely as well. Absolutely, and, it, and look, the presence of some questionable people, retrospectively notwithstanding, it is an incredible film. Yeah, and it's a, it's a horrible debate that we have to have, but it's one that's worth having. Do you judge the art or the artist? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look back at various singers who have had questionable pasts and various rock stars, but still their music is mm-hmm. played and people enjoy it. But, you know. It's problematic. It is problematic. But look, we're both agreed The Usual Suspects is your favourite film and it is a great film. And thank you for choosing it. Thank you very much. (laughs) And if you've never seen it, uh, forget what I've just said about the ending and just watch it. Yeah. When you watch it, give it another couple of weeks and watch it again because Mm. there's all the telltale signs throughout it that lead... And the the brilliant thing is, again, I'm not... I don't think I'm taking away too much of this. When Verbal Kint is doing all his talking, we don't know if that's ever true. Mm. It's only his point of view mm. of that story yeah. and that's one of the things you get on a rewatch and then there's all the little f- uh, physical clues that you get mm. uh, yes, he, it's worthy of rewatching. All he right. looks at the under end of the mug yeah okay <laughs> we're getting into spoiler territory tell me this I mentioned uh, Dublin Comedy Improv 1992 like yeah. that at that time there was very little of a comedy scene in Ireland right yeah I mean I first started in the international at the Comedy Cellar in 1991 so the mm. previous year and I was in a double act we went along to see the show Ardlo Hanlon used to do the bookings Yeah. so we went over to the lads after watching the show and we went can we do like a five minute open spot and Ardl said we've got somebody booked in for next week can you do the following week <laughs> nowadays it's like an eight month yeah. ten month waiting list Yeah. That back then it was one week there was one other open spot Okay. so we did our show and then we said afterwards 
can we have another one? And they said, yeah, come back in two weeks. So we developed very quickly. Comedians, I feel sorry for them now because there's so much competition. Okay. And I don't like to think of it as competition, but it's competitive to get those spots is mm. what I mean. Uh, that they, you know, you can, there's nothing like stage time. It's like doing a sport or anything. You mm. just got to keep doing it to yeah. get better at it. And yeah. they just don't get it now, the amount of stage time that we kind of used to get. Having said that, there's probably 20 clubs in the middle of Dublin now, whereas there was one yeah. back then. But that club back then in 1992 in Dublin Comedy Improv, I mean, it was a breeding ground for what would become a, a burgeoning. Well, it was more the comedy cellar that did the the, the stand-up. We did just improv, improv. So there would have been... But a lot of guys came out of that, didn't they? Yeah, well, famously Dylan Moran yeah. was with us for about a year. But like Dylan... He started within the comedy cellar. There was there was no real division between yeah. us. Just some of us improvised and wanted to do a bit more. Mm. And uh, I think the longest residency the international had, had on a Monday night when we used to do our shows uh, was an eight week. Okay, and we're now thirty years. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we've been there a long, long time. You... We just recently, after the pandemic, switched to Sunday nights. Okay. Uh, so we're eight o'clock on a Sunday, which is a lot better for us. Uh, we've. We are getting far more people in. It's sold out. When we on a Monday, we used to sell out when there was only two gigs in town. Yeah. Then there was a whole weekend of choice. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we weren't selling out for the last few years. Now we're back selling out again, and it, the shows are better because of it. You got yeah. an audience there. You you perform better. Yeah. Now tell me this. Uh, the I was going to say Dublin. How very Dublin centric of me. The Galway Comedy <laughs> Festival is taking place on the twenty fifth to the thirty first of October. So that's the guts of a week. Uh, yeah. Yourself, Dylan Moore, and Tommy Tiernan, and Reginald D. Hunter, Deirdre O'Kane, Rory Stories. All sorts of people are there, back in person. On like leading into talking about that, I've had a good few comedians in this slot over the last two years. Lockdown. How was it for you? Because you were one of the people, as in comedians like musicians, who were suddenly. You know? Yeah, no, you just couldn't do anything. Uh, so you'd get up in the morning and stare into space and then go back to bed and get up in the morning, stare into space. Yeah. And you were trying to motivate yourself to do yeah. some work. I did, I did a lot of writing and stuff, but it's irrelevant now because okay. it was thoughts about the pandemic. Yeah. And sometimes, <laughs> Who wants to hear that? I know, yeah. And just like some of them weren't even funny. It's just get stuff out of your head. Mm. And yeah, I got so bored at one stage, I went for a dental appointment just so I could have a conversation <laughs> with someone. Uh, so yeah, no, it was just... It really was tough. Yeah. And in a way, perversely, I kind of miss it now. Okay. Uh, and the improv kind of saved us because we we did do an online show every Monday for the entire run. Uh, and we would meet at the very beginning, we would meet every week to see what sort of games we could play mm -hmm. within the improv yeah. that would work on screen. So we mm -hmm. had to then invent new things. So we'd do that for another and then there was a fair few Fridays when we'd have a quiz. So there was three nights of the week taken up with the same people talking nonsense and then the Friday was the big kind of blowout. We'd okay. all get drunk and answer <laughs> stupid questions. and Yeah, so that gave you something to do. And I, there's so many films I didn't watch and <laughs> didn't watch The Wire box set, which I still have sitting at home. Have, didn't get round to that. Didn't watch much Netflix. So yeah, I did something, but I can't actually remember what it was that I did. Well, you survived it. That's the important thing. I got through. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you this in closing. You've, as I've mentioned many times, been doing this a long time now. If there's someone listening out there, a young person or maybe even someone middle-aged, but they're thinking, you know what? People say I'm funny. I'd, I'd like to give that a go. Sure, what the hell? Would you, at what point do you know, yeah, you should try stand-up? Or is it is it like one of those things, like Bruce Springsteen says, you either wake up in the morning desiring to do nothing else or you don't? 
I think there is an element of truth about that. It's something deep inside you. And those people, not to put anybody off, but mm. those people who think, oh, I'm the funniest one in the pub, invariably, you put them in front of a group of people, mm. they can't do anything. Comedians, when they're off stage, are the quietest people in the mm. room. For the most part. It's yeah. not a hard and fast rule. But for the most part, they're the ones sitting in the corner observing what's going on mm. in the room. They kind of don't want the attention. Mm. They like the attention. There's some people now have, a friend of mine, Danny, is doing a documentary at the moment. He reckons most comedians have got ADHD. That's his theory anyway, and particularly improvising comedians because your head is all over the place and mm. you get this madness out of you when you're on stage. Mm. When you walk off stage, you actually don't want the attention. And I think that's why some people think, oh, it's sad clown, happy clown kind of person because their expectation of a comedian off stage yeah. is different than what we actually are. So they go, oh, you're really grumpy. And you go, no, I'm not. I just don't want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think you have ADHD? Uh, oh, that's a nice cat. That's my answer to that. I told you, he's a comedian. <laughs> His favourite movie is The Usual Suspects. He will be appearing. How many nights or how many slots are you doing in the Go Away Comedy I'm, Festival? At the moment I'm booked for four, but last year I went down to do three and I think I did seven. Okay. Because uh, well, two people came down with COVID. But the, the shows that I really encourage you to go, they're both on at three o'clock on uh, the Saturday and the Sunday of the festival. And I do an improv show with uh, Steve Frost, who you, people will yeah. know from Whose Line Is It Anyway. Yeah. Steve Steen, who was also in Whose Line Is It Anyway, and a million other things, including Blackadder, as was Steve Frost, and Andy Smart. And we've been a troupe now. that The lads outdate me. They've been going for over 30 years with this particular group. I've been with them for about 20 years. So we have, I've performed in something like 45 countries with these fellas. Okay. And we do Glastonbury every year, and we do a million festivals. And it's just the best fun I have, you know, yeah. they're just really good mates and great improvisers and we have such a laugh. So three o'clock, Saturday, Sunday, uh, by nature of the fact that it's on in the afternoon, uh, you'll get a ticket. In Galway. <laughs> yeah. In Galway. Galway. Galway Comedy Festival. Comedy right? Festival. You can find out more on the website. In Coventry, we've been talking for 20 minutes. It's meant to be a 10 minute slot. We oh. better let each other go, but thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am Mr. Kobayashi. I've been asked by my employer to bring a proposal to you gentlemen. What do you want? My employer requires your services, gentlemen. One job, one day's work, very dangerous. He does not expect all of you to live, but those of you who do will have $91 million to divide between you in any way you see fit. Who's your boss? I work for Kaiser Soze. Who's Kaiser Soze? Judging by the sudden change in mood, Mr. Kint, I feel sure the rest of your associates can tell you. I come with an offer directly from Mr. Soze. An order, actually. A clip there from The Usual Suspects and you heard the great Pete Postlewaite. And that was the favourite movie of Ian Coppinger and my thanks to him. That is it for this week. I'll just remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. You can get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Thank you for listening and have a safe week ahead.